First Timothy chapter five, verses one through two is where we'll be uh, this morning. Uh, we're going to hit widows in a couple of weeks, but we're going to hit verses one and two this morning. Um, one thing about me is that I uh, love my kids. I have two boys, and I'm very thankful for them, and uh, I love them. But before I had kids, I struggled with kids in general. I'll just be honest with you. Um, I didn't uh, love kids. I, I would never sign up to do kids' ministry stuff. Um, I, I was a youth pastor for a little while. There was times I was a youth, a camp counselor for kids, and that was like kryptonite for me. I'll just be honest. And um, But there's this one incident where we, we served at a previous ministry, my wife and I, and they, there was a, a, a family in there that just had some kids in there that were tough. They were just tough kids. And one in particular, he almost ran over my wife while she was pregnant with her oldest. And just kind of those kind of kids, they were just wild kids. And they had a little girl, and the little girl loved me. And I don't know why. I think it's because she knew that I didn't like kids, and it would freak her out. Like, she knew she liked to freak me out. And, um, and she did a great job at that. Um, and she was the kind of little girl that was just into everything, um, just in everything. And so we had this particular event that took place um, at, as a ministry, the church that we were part of. And it was an outdoor event. We had like a, it was like a church carnival type thing where you have like cotton candy and nachos. And, and she had all of that in her, on her face and in her hair. Um, and I mean, her head looked like a, a big old piece of cotton candy is how much she had on it. And like, like, I, I don't know what my voice, my fin is very clean and neat and like something about stickiness and kids just we- wears me out. I'm just being honest. Um, and so this girl, she would just sit, she always loved to sit in my lap or jump on my back and I'd feel like, you know, oh, there's, you know, ice cream on me now. You know, there was this piece of spaghetti. Great. You know, um, and so she sat in my lap this one time and she had this big old thing of nachos um, and she was eating the nachos. And then as she said, Pastor Ben, she spit the words, and I looked down, and it's like a slow motion where it's like little particles of cheesy nachos are now sticking to my leg. And, uh, and if you know me well, I have like a weak stomach. Like I could never, like some of you just graduated from med school, I could never do that. Um, but I was just starting to dry heave. Like I was just like, Ooh, and Jessica was laughing hysterically, and I was like, you're beautiful, honey, you know, little girl. And I was just like, you know, but in, inside I was just torn apart. And part of it is, um, you know, something about kids that obey the rules are just easier to deal with. I'm just being honest. But, and this little girl, she's wasn't good at that. She just didn't obey the rules. And so the thing is, I think families in general, um, if, if we as families obey the rules, if we teach our kids what the rules are and they know the rules, um, they're just easier to deal with. And so one of the things as for us as a family, we have certain family rules that you just things that you don't do. And it's not we're trying to teach our kids to be pharisaical or anything like that, but we're just saying, hey, to get along so that we can move forward as a family so we can thrive as a family, we need to have family rules. And so one of the things I teach my son, every time I discipline, I say, when daddy talks, you do what? He says, you listen. I said, when daddy tells you to do something, you do it when? He says, right away. Why do we do this? He says, because we love each other. And that's why we do it. And that's, we have family rules. We have some fun rules uh, that my wife, um, she does stenciling. She's stenciled in our living room. And it's about what we do as a family, what we're all about as a family. We forgive one another. We have fun with one another. And it's just these family rules, family mottos. And so what you have here in 1 Timothy 5 are what 
Paul would call, or what Jesus would call, family rules. These are how we as a church family are to get along. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about a couple of different things. I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm gonna, we're going to talk about widows in a couple of weeks. But what I want to do is talk specifically about what the church is and how the church is a family. And that's just the first thing. We're going to talk about misconceptions around what that means, is, uh, the church is a family. And then thirdly, and lastly, we're going to be in the passage and we'll talk about practical ways that the church lives as a family. So this is the, kind of the three things we're going to do. So we're going to spend a little bit of time building uh, what it means that the church is a family, what it means theologically that the church is a family. So if you, if you have 1 Timothy 5 open, go ahead and put your finger there, maybe flip back two more, two, three more pages to chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. And I'll read this, and this will help us understand what this concept of family is. 1 Timothy 3, verse 14, it says this, Paul says this, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the, what's the phrase? Household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. And so what Paul is doing is he's writing this letter. First Timothy is a letter that is written um, to young Timothy. Paul is a church planter. He planted this church in Ephesus, and now he's gone. He's planting more churches, and he's writing this letter to a guy that he's discipled over the years named Timothy. And Timothy is this young, timid pastor who uh, is now pastoring this church. And this church has older people and younger people who are defiant, and they're difficult, and they teach bad things. They teach bad theology. And so what Paul is trying to write to Timothy to do is correct some of the problems that are happening in this church. You guys tracking with that? And then what he does is in this letter, he talks about several different things. He talks about in chapter one, church discipline. How do you discipline someone who's out of control, someone who's teaching bad things? Secondly, how, do you, how, how is the church to be modest? How are women to be modest? How are men to be godly? In, in chapter three, we have uh, elders and deacons. How are elders to lead and shepherd and pastor the flock? How are deacons to serve and, and, and nourish and help the, the, the church grow and, and thrive and be missional and be cared for? Then he does in chapter four, how a good servant should act. And so what he does though in chapter three, the, the very verse I just read to you is he's saying, I am writing you all of these things that seem somewhat trivial to some people. He's saying, I'm writing these things to you so that the body of Christ would know that how we are to behave among each other. These are our family rules. This is what we're supposed to do, guys. That's what he's saying. And so here's what I want to do. I want to take this idea of family and I want to build in you what theologically we should see ourselves as family and why should we see ourselves this way. So let me show you one other passage that we see, or two other passages that we'll see about family and how we're to see ourselves as children of God. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, verse 4 through 7, it says this. Paul, same writer, writes to a different crowd. These people, they had this idea that if you obeyed certain rules, you were better than someone else. 
If you were circumcised, you were better than someone who wasn't. If you were obeyed the law in this way, you were better than someone who didn't. So there was a varsity level Christianity and, and, and a JV level. It's kind of how they would put it. And so what Paul does is he writes to the Galatian church in the same way and to tell them that they are God's children and they're not to act in this way. And so what he does is this, Galatians 4, verse 47. Let's just read it. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive, what's the word? Adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his sons into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You are no longer a slave, but a son. Isn't that good news? We're no longer slaves, but a son. You guys awake this morning? (laughs) And if a son, then an heir through God. So what he does with these people who are living this, have this elitist mindset, I'm better than you because I can obey this law. I'm better than you because I can do this. He says, no, we are all slaves to sin. We all deserve eternal punishment in hell. But what God has done through Jesus Christ is he sent his son to give his life for us. And through his death, through his sacrificial death, we then are adopted by our heavenly father. And not only that, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. He's adopted us and he has called us slaves to sin. Other languages, foreigners, aliens. And he's called us his children. He also says in Ephesians 1 verse 5, in love, he predestined us through, for, what's the word? Adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So biblically speaking, here's what this means. Regardless of whether or not you know Christ, you have a father. If you are a believer in Jesus, God is your father. He has adopted you and chosen you before the foundation of the world that the Holy Spirit of God would draw you to saving faith, that you would repent and believe in the gospel. And then you then are called uh, sons and daughters, And those who are not in that category, Scripture tells us that the the father of those would be Satan himself. Um, John 8, verse 44, Jesus, when he talks to the Pharisees, the arrogant, self-righteous Pharisees, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and you will do your father's desires. And what he's telling the Pharisees here is you act this way because that is the way that your father acts. Satan is a a prideful, arrogant father. And his disciples and his children are prideful and arrogant people who only live to glorify themselves. If you ever meet someone and their kids are out of control and you say, oh, it makes sense why the kids are out of control. I know their dad, right? I know their father. Of course they'd act this way. I'm not shocked that they act this way. I know how their dad is. 
You ever meet someone that way? Well, this is exactly the same way. You are going to act like your father. And so if you're a believer in Jesus, and the father has adopted you, you are going to act like Jesus. You are going to strive for holiness and purity in your life and longing to know God more. That's a mark of what a believer is because that is your father who's adopted you. And so this is what this idea and this concept comes from when we are adopted by our father. Now, let me just say one thing. When you're adopted by the father, it's not like how we Americans adopt children, okay? How often we do it is we look through an adoption book and we see a list of really pretty babies, right? Here's a really pretty one. Look at the beautiful hair. Look at these eyes. Man, I, my grandchildren are going to be stunning if we adopt this one, right? And it's kind of the cute ones we pick, right? You've ever done Compassion International, and you get a list of kids to, to support overseas. It's a great organization. But oftentimes, you do is you pick the cute ones. Unfortunately, that's what you do. Uh, my wife and I, we, were, we knew that was the case, and we, so we would try to pick one that wasn't. That's the one we're going to support because all these people are going after the cute ones. That's crazy, right? But here's the thing about adoption. When the father adopts us, he doesn't look through the corridor of time and say, that would be a really good pick. If I get Ben, man, I've got a really good one there. I mean, he's going to have, I mean, he's going to have great grandchildren. It's going to make me look. No. When he looks through the book, children to adopt, we're all ugly. All right? I just want to tell you, you're ugly. All right? He's looking through the corridor of time, and he sees that we are sinners, and we need a Savior. And he saves us not based on the investment that he might have in us, but he saves us in spite of ourselves. Because when someone looks and they say, man, why is that person so radically different? They look not to your work and your effort, but they say, man, God must be big. God must be great. God must be good. And so when he adopts us, it's based on his love, not our righteousness. So here is our position. We were once orphans. We were once slaves to sin. But through Jesus, we are now adopted children. We are brothers and sisters who are now sons and daughters of a great father who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so now our goal in our life, if that's true, which it is, our life should be motivated by that truth. We are then to live under that banner of adopted sons and daughters that our lives then is about worshiping and praising our God and our King and our Heavenly Father. And then we live and motivate one another to do just that. And that's our motivation. That's why we gather corporately on Sunday. That's why we don't do church online at home. We get together, and we do that together to spur one another on to do that. That's why throughout the week, when it's not the summer, we do life together so we can spur one another alone as sons and daughters to do that together. And so there's this balance. So let me just untie some misconceptions here I think are, are problematic. Sometimes people think, well, that's just being inward focused if you do that. 
That's the focus of the church. That's just being inward. For, you're just thinking about yourself. You're just being too much of a country club. That's, that's the arguments that you'll hear. Look, I am 100%. We want to be 100% to support missions, support this proclamation of the gospel. People aren't saved without the proclamation of the gospel. I'm not against serving our city and loving our city well. I think that is part of the mission of the church. Part of the mission of the church is evangelism. Part of the mission of the church is feeding the poor. I totally theologically agree with that. But if you read the New Testament, in addition to those things, what's also part of the mission of the church is to care for one another deeply and profoundly. And you'll see this constant ring of taking care of your flock and the teaching. It's always like this pattern over and over and over again. Every letter that Paul writes, it's almost, it's almost um, overly communicated that the church would take care of one another. <laughs> because if we don't, we can't go and share the gospel effectively if we don't care for one another. And so what do you even have? Like, he even says it in Galatians 6, 10, it's so clear. He says, as we have the opportunity, let us to do good with e- to everyone, and especially to those in the household of faith. So the goal then of the, mi- the mission of the church is to share the gospel to every living creature, but it's to take care of those in God's household, that we would love and serve one another well. I think there's something so attractive about that when the church does that well. Now, I have um, a lot of siblings. I have, uh, I'm all American. That's what I tell people. I have, uh, I'm the youngest of four of my mom and dad. I have a half brother who is um, 14 years younger than me, and I have a stepsister who's eight years younger than me. My oldest blood brother is 14 years older than me. So I have a brother who's 14 years older than me, and I have a brother who's 14 years younger than me, okay? So I'm the, I am the baby, and I'm the oldest as well. Does that make sense? Are you guys, if, you're, if it doesn't, I understand. I'll write it down. I'll show you a chart next week. Um, but, but this is my family, especially my, my older siblings, um, we were known for parties. The Tugwells can party. I mean, when I became a believer, it was hard for people to even imagine that I was going into ministry. Like, I remember I was at a restaurant one time and says, you're, you're, uh, you're a Tugwell. Oh, man, you guys throw parties. That's what you do. And so and my siblings, I used to bribe my, uh, my brother Randy because he would throw parties. And I would tell Randy, he was a waiter at this time at a restaurant. He's a chef now, but he was a waiter at a restaurant at this time. And he would bring in tons of tip money. And I would tell him, Randy, if you don't give me money, a percentage of what you bring in every, uh, I was like a young entrepreneur. Um, if you don't give me a percentage of what you bring in, I'm going to tell mom about those parties that you threw. And he'd be like, every time he'd come in, he would drop 10 or $12 on me as a kid. I could have made more money. I didn't think about how much money I could have made there, but that's what we did. And that's what we were known for. And when we were even little kids, kids in the neighborhood, they loved to come to our backyard because my dad, he had the cigar. He's out grilling, making chicken and make crazy hot chicken. And everybody would come and we, you know, this is where the Tugwell house is where you would go and eat chicken and have, have meals together and play kickball in the backyard and play basketball. And that's what we always did. It's always an outdoor deal where we did this. And I loved it because what it did is it kind of made our house like kind of a silo. This is where you come to have fun. This is where you come to enjoy uh, fellowship with one another. 
And we had a lot of issues as a family. I mean, I just told you all the brothers and sisters and all that stuff. But what it was, was we were welcoming. It was a welcoming aspect to it. I think the family of God should have much more, go beyond even that, that we care for one another in such a way that it's attractive to a lost world out there. And so Paul gives these practical examples to us in just two verses, and then we'll, uh, we'll do like part two in a couple of weeks. But look with me, if you will, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says this. I want you to keep in mind as we're reading this, we are adopted sons and daughters. It says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. And so what Paul is telling this young, timid pastor to just go, when you go in and when you correct these bad teachers, when you deal with all the conflict that is happening, when you approach all of these different people, we are to have mutual respect across the board. We're to love one another like we are correcting and disciplining our own brother, sister, mother, father. And so he starts with older men. How do you then go? If you're a young, timid pastor, how do you go and talk to an, a man who is older than you? When I say man who's older than you, I'm talking 15, 20, 30 years older than you. Well, you don't go and say, dude, all right? You don't say, dude, all right? You talk to him like he's older. You say, sir. You respect him. But notice what it doesn't do. It doesn't say that an older person can't be wrong. It doesn't even say that he's wiser or have more knowledge. Now, an older person has more experience. Life has happened to them more. So if you're a younger brother, you want to come alongside him like he's a father, like you would if you were to correct your own father about something. You're spurring them on. That you're challenging them in such a way that you're saying, let's, let's do this together. Let's walk in this together. Now, as a young pastor, I've had to do church discipline on people who are older. And I can't say dude when I do that. I have to come alongside of them as I would. This is the way I would handle my father if he was dealing with this issue. And he talks about younger men. Younger men, I can say dude to. I can be a little bit more sharper with a younger guy. I can call him out a little bit more brash if I have to, right? Especially if he's not repentant. So go after him with a little bit of sharper edge, but I'm not to act like I'm better than a younger man or someone my age. I'm to treat him as equals. I'm going to come alongside of him like I am my own brother. What are you doing, <laughs> all right? What are you thinking when you do this? You can't, you can't do that. You can't move in that direction. You can't, you can't hook up with that girl. Are you out of your mind? She's crazy, right? You can't do that. She likes Mickey Minaj. That's insane, right? What are you thinking? You know, so you come alongside of them like they are your own brother. And so you have older men, younger men, older women. How then is a young pastor, young male pastor, go up and talk to an older woman? He says, like it's your mom. For us as a family, like I said, we have family rules. But my mother, and I would say this if she was here because she would think it's funny, um, she likes to break the family rules, okay? 
and because she's a grandmother, and that's what grandmothers do. Um, they love to break the family rules, okay? And what this means is, I mean, I'm just astounded sometimes, like, what I couldn't get away with when I was a kid. My son could do anything. It just blows my mind. So if you're a grandmother in here, you know what, that, you know what, that's, you know what I'm saying. My, my son, it's like when he stays at grandma's house, we have to deconstruct, like, days of bad things that he's done. Like, okay, you can't run out in the street naked. Okay, you cannot do that. I can't believe we have to say that, but that, that's the, one of the rules now, right? Uh, we've made this, we've added this to the family rules now and because of grandmother. And like, now it's like, you can't eat candy in your bed and you can't, you know, you can't hit your brother in the face, you know, with a curling iron. I mean, you can't do that. And like, it's just, it's just all overwhelming, but that's what grandmothers do. They kind of come. And so there's been times that I've had to come alongside my own mother. Say, mom, I love you. Best grandma in the world. You know, but you can't do this particular thing. You know that this is something we've always taught him to say or taught him to do or not to say. You can't watch that movie with him. And I don't say it in a way that embarrasses her or puts her down or insults her. I don't say it in a way that makes her look foolish or stupid because she's my mother. So when I come alongside of her, I want to honor her, but I also want to say, these are the family rules, mom. You know, we love you. And so this is the way that a young, if, if a young pastor is to talk to an older woman, this is how he should do it. But then he talks about younger women. It, it's interesting the language that is used in, in verse 2. He says, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity, which literally means all chastity. That's the way that he's supposed to challenge this woman in her sexual purity. It's very interesting that Paul uses that. And I think part of that is, is, is because what I've actually seen in Greenville, uh, I've seen, I think, the, I think it's like the, the ratio of guys and gals in Greenville is like four to one. So if you're a guy here, you've got four options, Okay. So I'm just saying, like, what's wrong with you if you can't find a girl? Okay, anyway. Um, but what I've seen with, with girls here is they get challenged because they, they only have, they don't have, they have slim pickings. Let's just say that, okay? They have slim pickings. And they know that, so they find some guy that's not good for them. And we've had to come alongside girls here at the church and say, look, I love you, but I don't want to see you do this. I don't want to see you date this guy. This guy, look, trust Jesus. Let Jesus give you the right guy to marry this guy's no good, right? This guy's not good for you. And if you were to do this as your own sister, I think like my, my, my younger sister, Rachel, um, she used to date these crazy guys. I didn't understand it. Beautiful girl, sweet girl, jerky guys. Never understood it. And I would always, even as a kid, I would always fight for my sister no matter what. And I, we, would, we would go out, we would really fight. And so there's times I really did not like my sister. But when it came to her dating guys, I was all, I was plugged in. Like, I was like, I'm on this, right? I'll never forget this one guy came in and he was just a punk. I just knew it right away. He was, it's not going to work, right? He had like a long t-shirt on. He has baggy pants. He's kind of walking in. He had his like hat turned sideways, his pop collar. I just knew he liked Nickelback. It was obvious. I could see it on his face. And he said, what's up, dog? Like that. I said, no, 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 no. This won't work. I said it to him. <laughs> this is not going to work. He's like, what's, what's not going to work? I said, if you touch my sister, I will break your arms. And I'm 120 pounds at the time, right? 
But I was like, I will break your arms. Leave. And he left. And she got mad at me, but she thanked me later because she realized that he wasn't any good for her. And that is what I was willing to do for my sister. Think about that. Your, your sister, your own sister, your own flesh and blood. Of course you're going to fight for that. And so for the church, he tells young Timothy to fight for the young girls in the church in the same way you would your own sister. You would your own sister. But here's the thing. It's not like it's optional. It's a responsibility that he's putting on Timothy. And here's the thing. It, it's not like y'all get off scot-free in this, okay? I just want to say that. Because if we are adopted sons and daughters, then the same responsibility and the same weight rests on all of us as well. That when you see another girl in this church, that is your sister. When you see another guy in this church, that is your sister. When you see an older person in this church, that you treat them like that's your mother or that's your father because we are a spiritual family. And so when you look around the room, we see family. This is what this whole thing is about. And so this is important because, I mean, he even echoes. Let me just read Timothy chapter 2, or Titus chapter 2, just so you can see even more of this picture. So we have like a little skeleton here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, but he adds meat to the skeleton in, in Titus. So let me just read it for you. Titus 2 verses 1 and 2, it says this. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So he talks about a church that teaches God's word as well is, is a beautiful thing, but he talks practically how that plays out. Look in verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, good word, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may not be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So he's saying a church that teaches sound doctrine well should look this way, where older women are teaching younger women how to do life. Older men are teaching younger men how to be men. And then he says, we do this so that no one would say anything evil against us. Which means when the lost world, when the outside world peeks in at what's going on at Integrity Church, they're to see this picture and it's, they marvel at this picture because nowhere else is this to happen. Only under the banner of understanding our position as adopted sons and daughters by a great, sovereign, wonderful king can we even boast in this. And can we even have this type of fellowship? And we think it's this unique thing, but all it's called is discipleship. That's all it is. This is just, this is just practical discipleship laid out. 
Older man teaching a younger man. Older woman ta- teaching a younger woman. Older uh, people the same age that are speaking into one another's life. This is all it is, discipleship. That's all it is. And somehow we've, we, we, we get so weirded out when we talk about discipleship because we think this, this is some mysterious thing. It's interesting, when I talk about discipleship, people immediately think about a curriculum. What book are we going to go through, right? What, what curriculum are we going to use? What study guide are we going to use? What Bible study are we going to buy and purchase? But, but he doesn't talk about any of that here. It's just life on life that happens. And it's interesting. I, I meet a lot of different church planners, a lot of different pastors, and I, it's interesting how often I hear this phrase. We're good at a lot of things, but we're just not real good at discipleship. The problem with that is discipleship is the game that we're playing. When, when Jesus told his disciples to go and make disciples, that was the great commission. Make disciples of every nation. That is it. That's the goal. What about converts? Well, converts, that's a prerequisite to them becoming disciples. So we know, obviously, we're to preach the gospel to get them to convert to Jesus and know and love Jesus. But the goal is to disciple them to make disciples. This isn't a rare thing. This isn't something unusual. It's part of the game. So for you to say, we do everything well except for disciples, that's just like saying, we have a great football team. We have a great quarterback. We have a great defensive line. We just don't score any goals, right? You're a terrible football team if you don't score goals. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to score touchdowns, right? The kicker's supposed to make field goals, ECU, right? You're supposed to do that. <laughs> supposed to do that. So the church's goal is to make disciples. That's the end game. And all you see here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, and then all the way to how we treat widows, how we serve, is all about making disciples for the glory of God. That's it. And so the question then comes down to, how do we do that? Well, a couple of ways that we do that, we have to, it's to be awkward sometimes, Right? We have to have hard conversations. We have to get into each other's lives. We have to know each other past the norm of what we see in Southern evangelical culture. We just come here and this is what we do. It has to start with ways of us being approachable people, going to the harder places for men and women to be vulnerable with one another, confessing sin among each other, gospeling each other, helping each other understand the gospel well. So my questions are, Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to go life on life with another person? Are you willing to ask the hard questions? Are you willing to be asked the hard questions? Are you willing for that? So my my hope in this, that we would have this church that doesn't see each other as old or young, that we see each other as, as brothers and sisters who are striving together and pressing each other and spurring one another along so that we would love and cherish the gospel more, so that we can be a church that makes disciples to uttermost parts of the world. God help us. Let's pray. Jesus, help us this morning.